0: Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, it is uh, great to be with you this morning as we continue this series looking at our words. And one of the things that I um, have focused on every single week that we've been. looking at the importance of our words, is just this reminder from Jesus about the connection between our words and our hearts. And this is one of the reasons why God cares so deeply about the things that we say. We see this in Matthew chapter 12 from Jesus. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So just a reminder why God cares so much about our words. God cares so much about our words because our words, more than anything else, reveal what our hearts are like and God cares about our words because God cares about our hearts and this morning we're going to be looking at one of these this area of words that I think from God's perspective is one of the most sobering perspectives of our hearts one of the most sobering pictures of what our hearts are actually like and that is complaining and grumbling I am a world-class complainer I think that's actually why I'm preaching this, um, because I have so much experience when it comes to complaining and grumbling. I complain when the winter weather is too cold, which is really quite ironic, because I've lived in the Midwest my entire life. It's not as though this is a new phenomenon. It's something that I can expect and experience every single year. I complain about my favorite sports team, which again is ironic. I've been an Iowa fan for my entire life. What makes me think that this year will be any different when it comes to an offense that can put points on the board? I complain about mosquitoes in the summer. I do think that's legitimate, though. (laughs) I complain, I've gotten better at this, but I do complain about other drivers when they're going a little too slowly for me. I complain about just about anything and everything. Complaining, it seems like, is part of human nature. It's just part of being a human. Even for some people, complaining is a source of bonding and connection with other people. We connect with other people because we're united against a common enemy that we get to complain about. And while complaining and grumbling might seem like a relatively harmless thing, we might not even consider it a sin. God has an altogether different picture of what our grumbling is like. God takes grumbling and complaining very seriously because it's actually an affront to his character. We read this earlier, but Paul, addressing the church in Corinth, writes these words of warning. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God takes our grumbling so seriously, far more seriously than you and I do, because it reveals a heart that is sick, a heart that is diseased. In the Old Testament, the grumbling and complaining of of the wilderness generation got so bad that God actually brought judgment and put them to death to stop their grumbling, And we might ask, why does God take grumbling and complaining so very seriously? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, looking at this topic from God's perspective. But before we do that, I want to just give us a a working definition of what does it mean to, to grumble and complain according to what we see in the scriptures. This will help us to see why God takes this so seriously. And here's how I define grumbling and complaining according to the Bible. It's this, grumbling is an accusation that says we don't deserve our circumstances and therefore God is not to be trusted. Let me say that again. Grumbling is an accusation that says we don't deserve our circumstances and therefore God is not to be trusted. Let's go ahead and break this definition apart. First, grumbling is an accusation. It is, it is not just us venting. It's not just us getting something off of our chest. It is a pointed finger. And more specifically, it is a pointed finger at God. Every single time we complain, we are pointing fingers at God. As we see from Exodus 15 through 17, even when we aren't directing our grumbling toward God, it is ultimately against God. Now, why do I say that, that grumbling is an accusation? Well, that gets into the second part of this definition, It's an accusation against God that says, I don't deserve the circumstances that I am experiencing. Now, we might not vocalize this, but that's really at the heart of all of our complaining. That the circumstances that I find myself in right now are beneath me. Now, perhaps most sobering of all is the third part of this definition where where, where our complaining and our grumbling reach a conclusion about God's character. In our complaining, in our grumbling, we are saying, therefore, God is not to be trusted. Our complaints accuse God of being a not very good God because he should know better the things that I'm experiencing, he should know better than to allow someone like me to experience what I am going through. And if God fails in this regard, then he is not worth trusting in my life. Now, significantly, this is true in every area of grumbling, from the smallest all the way to the greatest. So let me, uh, let me just kind of give three examples of how this plays out with di- differing levels of severity here. First one, let's say that you are struggling to make, to make ends meet. Month after month after month, it seems like there's this new crisis that, that afflicts you that has to be taken care of so you can never, ever break even, let alone get ahead. And in the midst of this, while you're doom-scrolling Facebook before you go to bed, which is never a good idea, you see pictures of your neighbors from their most recent trip to Florida and in that moment, something snaps within you, and you cry out to no one in particular, and you say, This just isn't fair. Why is my life so hard? Why can I never get ahead? Why do all the bad breaks happen to me and to no one else? Another example let's say you have a coworker who drives you crazy. They do the bare minimum at work. They leave you to pick up all of the slack. They actually spend their entire time at work complaining, which is completely ironic because they don't realize how they're complaining about everyone making their life harder is actually making your life harder because you have to carry the weight of their unwillingness to serve, their unwillingness to do their job, their incompetence. And each and every night when you get home, you just unload your frustrations on your spouse or on a friend, and you say, I just can't take it anymore. When are they finally going to start doing what they were hired to do? Why do I have to deal with this day in and day out? A third example. Let's take my complaint of the weather earlier. It's the middle of January, and it is cold outside. It's dark before I even get off of work. My family is going stir crazy because we can't be outside as much as we want to be. And there's this thing called the wind chill here in northwest Iowa that makes your face hurt when you walk outside. And in the midst of that, the wind chill is just cutting my face with a knife. I just say, this is ridiculous. How long is this going to last? Why is it so cold here? Couldn't we at least have a day without the wind where I could just walk outside and feel my face? And each of these, underneath the surface of these complaints, is actually a heart of accusation that says, I don't deserve what I am experiencing. The circumstances that I find myself in, I don't don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be struggling to make ends meet. I don't deserve to to have a job that's a challenge or coworkers that make my life miserable. I don't deserve cold weather. But here's what the underlying accusation of that uh, uh, excuse me, the underlying assumption of that accusation is when we grumble and complain, we're not just saying, I don't deserve this. We're also saying, I would have done it better. If I was in charge, I would have, I would have done things better. I would have, I would have known that. Hey, you know what? I don't deserve to make ends meet, and so I would have made my life easier. I would have known that I don't deserve to have coworkers who make my life miserable, and so I would have given myself coworkers who are just as hardworking as I. If I were in charge, the weather wouldn't be downright miserable. Now, here's the implied accusation of all of that. When we say I would have done it better, we're actually saying God, the one who is in charge, is not doing it good enough. Complaining and grumbling is fault-finding with God himself, in essence, looking God in the eye and saying, you know what, I would have done a better job at being God than you. Because if you were doing a good job at being God, my life would look a whole lot better than it does right now. Whether that is financial stability, or an easier job, or better weather, or a more convenient... Drive to work, or programming a church that meets my preferences, less abrasive co workers, you name it. We're saying to God, I would make a better God than you in this moment. Do you see why grumbling and complaining matters so much to God? Because at its heart, we are telling God that He's not a very good God. And if I were God, I would do things a lot better and A lot more enjoyable for me and for everyone else. This is abundantly clear when we look at the Old Testament and the story of Israel in the wilderness. Virtually every occurrence of the word grumbling in the Old Testament is found in seven chapters. Exodus 15 through 17, and then Numbers 14 through 17. We're going to go ahead and look this morning at Exodus 15 through 17, the story of Israel in the wilderness. Consider these three tests of Israel in the wilderness and what it reveals about grumbling and some implications for us as well. So let's go ahead and jump into the first test, Exodus 15 through 17. I mentioned is this sobering picture. To set the context for us, God has just saved Israel out of Egypt. The people have seen God's glory on display, His power on display, not only in the plagues, but also in the crossing of the Red Sea. They've seen God defeat the Egyptians. They've seen God save them to the uttermost. And immediately on the heels of this great salvation, right afterward we encounter these three stories of grumbling in the wilderness. So the first one is Israel grumbling about bitter water in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Pick up in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So immediately after leaving the Red Sea, Israel sets out into the wilderness. They journey into the wilderness for about three days. Each day they're not finding water. And I want you to imagine what this was like for those people. They are on cloud nine. They've just been freed from slavery. They've seen God work in incredible ways. There is nothing too powerful for this God. It culminates in the parting of the Red Sea, and they begin to set out, saying, you know what, God is with us. He's he's for us. He's going to deliver us. And then they set out into the wilderness, and day goes by, and day goes by, and day goes by, and that relief, this assurance, this confidence that God is with them slowly begins to diminish, just like their water supply continues to diminish. Now, on the third day, the people finally encounter water. And I just want you to imagine the relief in this moment. The people rush to the water in order to fill their, their to drink their fill, to refill their water supplies. And yet that water quickly turns to, to, to this bitterness, just like the water itself, because the water is undrinkable. And it's almost like it's better to not hope at all, rather than to hope and have your hopes dashed in this moment. This is too much for the people of Israel, and so they begin to grumble and to complain about their leader, Moses. Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I think Moses' actions here are instructive. He finds himself in the exact same circumstances as as the people of Israel. It's not as though he has this secret source of water. And yet, rather than grumbling in this moment, Moses instead cries out to God. There's this really important distinction here between what the Bible considers complaining and what the Bible considers to be grumbling. In the Bible a complaint is not inherently wrong. You look at the psalms and you see that there are plenty of psalms where David complains. So we look at Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not your face from hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaints and I moan David says something similar in Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell my trouble before him. David is able to complain to God without sinning because at the heart of his complaint is a radical trust that God is able to change his circumstances. There's this crucial distinction in the Bible between complaining that accuses God of wrongdoing or grumbling, and complaining that trusts God to, adju- to address the wrongdoing that we are experiencing. And that second category is what we see from Moses here in Exodus chapter 15. The people of Israel grumble against God, but Moses runs to God. They're both experiencing the exact same trying circumstances, but the response makes all the difference in the world. And as we see, God intervenes. He makes the water sweet, which is probably just a way of saying that it becomes fresh water. Verse 25 again. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So in light of this event, God reveals that this lack of water and this bitter water from Mara was a test. God wanted to see how Israel was going to respond when he gave them trying circumstances, when they experienced hardship. Would they remain faithful to God? Would they remain continuing to rely on him? Would they ask God to intervene, fully trusting that this God who delivered them from Egypt was also able to deliver them from thirst? Or would they fail the test? would they instead grumble? Would their circumstances overwhelm them to the point of accusing God of wrongdoing? And as we see, Israel fails the test. The words of warning here actually reveal how seriously God takes grumbling. Notice again the words of the test here, picking up in verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The fact that Israel grumbles implies that not only they failed the test, but also that they didn't diligently listen to God. They didn't do what was right in his eyes. They didn't give ear to his commandments. They didn't keep all of his statutes. This passage contains a very sobering warning that if they persist in grumbling against God, not trusting God, but grumbling against him, then they will experience the same end as the Egyptians. Notice how chapter 15 ends in verse 27. Then they came to Elam, Where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. You catch what God's doing here. This chapter ends with this not-so-subtle reminder of the importance of trusting God even when we find ourselves in the midst of challenging circumstances. Israel's very next step on their wilderness journey is to paradise. Twelve springs of water, 70 palm trees. It's it's what they could have ever more than whatever they could have dreamed of. Even before they were grumbling at Mara, they find themselves in the bitterness of the wilderness. God has already created a plan to provide for his people, to meet the needs of his people at Elam. This reminds us that grumbling is incredibly short-sighted. We can't see the future. We can't see when our trying circumstances are going to come to an end. We have no idea what God has planned for how he is going to end the circumstances that challenge and try us. We have no idea what God has in store to relieve us of the things that cause us pain. Elam is a not-so-subtle reminder that God is worth trusting because he is faithful, that he is good, and that he will deliver his people on his timetable, not on our own. So that's the first story of Israel's test in the wilderness. We turn to Exodus 16. We see a second story of grumbling. Israel grumbles because of a lack of food. This is a lengthy chapter, so for our purposes, we're just going to highlight the beginning and the end as they pertain to grumbling. Pick up in verse 1. So, Israel leaves Elam, they go back into the wilderness, and verse 1 actually gives us some context here. It says, This happens all within the first month of Israel being delivered from slavery in Egypt. So, not even a month has gone by, or about a month has gone by, since the crossing of the Red Sea. And the implication is clear. A month has gone by, and Israel should remember very vividly what slavery was actually like, and the challenges of slavery. Israel should remember very vividly the incredible moment where God parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to cross through on dry land. Of course, should be is not always the same as is. And so Israel instead decides to grumble. They actually take things even further this time than the first episode. They say that their situation is so bad, they would have rather been killed alongside the Egyptians back in Egypt rather than here in the wilderness, because at least when they were slaves in Egypt, there they had food. Out here in the wilderness, they have no idea where their next meal is going to come from, and so they conclude, Moses, you've just brought us out here in order to let us die. And again, think of the context here set by verse 1, set by what we just saw in chapter 15. It's it's almost laughable, this accusation, this grumbling from the people of Israel, and yet it's laughable, but even more than that, it's it's horrific. In essence, they are saying we'd rather have the safety of slavery in Egypt rather than having to rely on God for our day-to-day existence. What a terrible thought, having to rely on God for our existence. Of course, I wonder how often we also say the same thing with our actions, that we would rather gladly take up the slavery to sin, the comforts of slavery to sin and its security, rather than taking the the terrifying step of having to trust God day to day to day for our needs. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God, of course, is gracious when the people complain against him again. He hasn't just saved his people in order to let them die in the wilderness, and so he promises Moses that he's about to meet their needs in a way that will make the the fill of bread that they experienced in Egypt that they long for so much look like nothing. God's going to meet their needs in an incredible way. So Moses and Aaron tell the people, God is going to meet your needs, but more than that, they get to the heart of Israel's grumbling. They're saying, even though your grumbling is directed at us, your complaints are directed at us, you're you're mad at us, ultimately your grumbling here isn't about us, it's, it's against God himself. That's what we saw in our definition of grumbling. It's an accusation that we don't deserve the circumstances that God has placed us in so that he cannot be trusted anymore. While grumbling and complaining might have been directed at Moses and Aaron here, it's ultimately directed at God, saying that God isn't doing good enough of a job taking care of them. And so over the course of the next several verses, we see God does exactly what he has promised to do. He provides meat for them and bread for them. That's what we see in verses 9 through 15. He gives Israel specific instructions on how they are to gather that bread and also includes rules for when not to gather the bread so that they can keep the Sabbath. As we might expect, some of the people of Israel don't listen to God and they decide to do what they want. That's what we see all the way from verses 16 through 30. And as we come to the end of the chapter, we get to this summary paragraph. The summary paragraph I find so, so powerful. Because it reminds us that this isn't just a a short, one-off kind of thing. Or it's not just for a couple weeks or a month or so. This is how God provides for his people for the next 40 years in the wilderness. Pick up in verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I put you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations." As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. I find these verses, especially verse thirty six, to be absolutely astounding. Consider day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, for 40 years in the wilderness, Israel has a daily, tangible reminder that God cares for them, that God will provide for them. Every single morning, they could wake up and see manna on the ground waiting for them. Can you imagine the compounding effect of seeing that faithfulness of God on display day after day after day, first thing in the morning? Imagine. It's two days after you have entered into the wilderness of sin, and God has promised that He is going to do this. And and you've seen Him do it once, you've seen Him do it twice, and and yet you wake up that third day before your eyes even open, you are just racked with anxiety, and you're like, "Well, Well, we've we've run out of the food from yesterday. All the food that we gathered, we've already eaten. Will God actually provide for us? Again, where is our food going to come from? Is God trustworthy? And you walk outside, out of your tent, and you look, and the first thing that you see is food. Again, morning by morning by morning, tangible expressions of God's faithfulness abound. And this should instill a rock-solid confidence in this God that he is faithful that he is trustworthy, that he is going to take care of them. And that's what makes the final episode of Exodus chapter 17, where Israel grumbles once again, so sobering. In Exodus chapter 17, Israel grumbles because of a lack of water. Significantly, they grumble that God is not taking care of them regarding water while they have a tangible expression that very day of God providing food for them. God is taking care of them with food and they see, God, we we don't trust you. We don't think you can do this. You can't provide for us like we need you to. And how often we are like the Israelites. We're doubting whether God actually cares about us, whether he's actually gonna take care of us in this area. And if we would just open our eyes, we'd look a little broader, we'd take a step back, we'd see God's doing it right here. In this area, God has proven himself to be faithful. Start in verse 1. All the people of Israel, excuse me, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So again, the people of Israel journey into the wilderness. Again, they find themselves without water. Again, they complain against Moses, and again, they accuse Moses of trying to kill them in the wilderness. Verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses, just as he did before, he cries out to God, and just as before, God intervenes, takes care of his people, provides for his people once again. Notice how the chapter ends. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Here we are given a summary of this final episode where Israel grumbles against God saying, is the Lord with us or not? Is God among us or not? Again, remember, this is taking place at the very same time that God is proving his presence with them through providing the manna day after day after day. No wonder Exodus says that they tested the Lord with their grumbling. They complained about God. They complained about what he was doing. They refused to acknowledge him. They refused to trust him. And in their grumbling, Israel accuses God, declaring, we don't deserve what you're putting us through, God. And we don't think that we can trust you because of it. No wonder... Complaining and grumbling matter so much to God. Grumbling is not a small thing. It is an accusation directed at God that says, I would make a better God than you would. God, you cannot be trusted. Let's consider four implications of grumbling from Exodus 15 through 17. First, and it's worth repeating once more, we've already seen this, but I'm going to say it again. Grumbling or complaining is ultimately directed toward God. Moses makes this explicit in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8. You might think that you are complaining about someone or something else, but when you grumble and when you complain, you are saying, I wouldn't have done things the way God did, and I would have done them better. Complaining is a form of arrogance because it says, I can do better than you, God. Grumbling, even when we complain about other people, is ultimately about God because he is the one who reigns over all of our circumstances. Second, grumbling is rooted in forgetfulness and tunnel vision. This is readily apparent when you read Exodus chapter 15 as a whole first 21 verses of Exodus chapter 15, we didn't read those. First 21 verses of Exodus chapter 15 are two songs celebrating God's faithfulness in his deliverance of Israel out of Egypt in the crossing of the Red Sea. Two songs. It's it's almost overwhelming how long these songs are, how, how long the singing is about the goodness of God and coming through for his people, and then the very next moment, they're complaining about God. Grumbling comes into play when we forget God's faithfulness, when our circumstances seem to outweigh our view of God. For us today, grumbling comes out when we get tunnel vision as well tunnel vision, when we focus so much on our specific circumstances that are causing us grief and that are trying us, that we don't see the whole picture. We don't see the way that God is at work in other ways right now in this very moment. Isn't that what we see in Exodus chapter 17 verse 7 when the Israelites ask this question, is God among us or not? While God is providing food for them every single day. That question of the Israelites there in verse seven, is God among us or not, implies the second part of a statement. If he was, then my life would be a whole lot different than what I'm experiencing right now. Third, in trying circumstances, we will either trust the Lord or test the Lord. This is why Exodus chapters 15 through 17 refer to these as tests from God. God wants to see what we are like in these trying circumstances. How will Israel respond? Will they trust God or will they test him by complaining about him? Have you ever considered that God is doing the exact same thing with you when you find yourself in circumstances that you wouldn't choose? challenging circumstances, trying circumstances. God is is allowing you to be in those moments to see, are you going to trust him or are you going to test him? Are you going to complain about him? In those moments, God is placing us there so that we might grow in our trust in him. When you find yourself in trying circumstances or around trying people, that doesn't mean that you have to be completely passive. You can actively ch- try to change your circumstances. You should bring your complaints to God. That's what Moses does, that's what David does. But the key difference between a complaint that is acceptable to God and grumbling that is accusatory toward God is whether you maintain your trust in Him that this God is good, that He is Lord over your circumstances. And he is worth trusting in spite of what you are experiencing. Will you trust the Lord or will you test him? Final thing, the key to overcoming grumbling is gratitude. Nothing kills grumbling and complaining like being active and intentional and in expressing gratitude. Each and every day, no matter your circumstances, you have more than enough to be thankful for. And we would do well each and every day to take time, especially at the end of the day, to turn off your phone, to turn off the TV, to turn off the tablet, and reflect on the ways that God has shown himself faithful today. In this very day, even if you had an absolutely awful, rotten day, you have, you have things you can be thankful for, starting with the gospel. When you are faced with the temptation toward grumbling, reflect on the gospel and maybe pray something like this. Lord, today has been a tough day. Things have not gone at all the way that I would have desired or wanted or imagined. It is so easy for me to focus on everything that went wrong, the conversations that frustrated me, the delays to my timetable that threw me off, the the circumstances that bring me pain, and yet through it all, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you that you have promised me that you will always be with me, you will never leave me, you will never forsake me, that even when my heart condemns me, you have promised that you will not condemn me because of the gospel. I ask that you would intervene and change these circumstances that I'm experiencing that bring me pain, but in the waiting, help me to trust you because you have proven yourself worthy of my trust in the waiting each and every day. It's that focus on gratitude That is what we see Paul says is the key to killing our grumbling. He's writing to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul calls on the church to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, or to grow in obedience to the gospel, not as a way to earn God's favor, but as a way to bring glory to God after he has saved us. And in the midst of that, Paul actually refers back to the wilderness generation. And basically says, don't be like them be a people of gratitude. Notice what he says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's Paul. He's writing from prison. He's facing an unknown future. He's, He's not sure if he's going to be killed for his faith or not. And he says, you know what? I'm able to rejoice. And because I am able to rejoice, I would like you to join me in rejoicing as well. Rejoicing or gratitude is the key to overcoming our grumbling. Did you notice what happens when we do this? It's found in verse 15. When we're a people of gratitude rather than grumbling, notice what happens. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When you swap grumbling for gratitude, you stand out, shining like stars in the blackness of a world that thrives on complaining, that thrives on grumbling. That's what I hope each of us latches onto as we consider this charge, to move from grumbling to gratitude this morning. That's simply this, God's people shine brightly. You shine brightly when you're known for gratitude and not for grumbling. You will shine brightly if you are known in your workplace for gratitude. You will shine brightly in your church if you are known for gratitude. You will shine brightly in your neighborhood if you are known for your gratitude and not for your grumbling. What if we took Paul's words here seriously? That we were a people who saw grumbling and complaining for what they really are in God's eyes not as relatively harmless or a bad habit or just something that, everything, uh, that everyone does, but instead an accusation directed at God that says we don't deserve what you're putting us through, God, and we can't trust you because of it. What if we were known, not for our grumbling, but for our gratitude? God's people, you will shine brightly when you are known for your gratitude even in the worst of circumstances, rather than grumbling. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would help us. Be gracious to us that we would be a people of gratitude. That we would honor you with our words. Glorify you with our words. By trusting in you even when it's hard. Have mercy on us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.